Let's pray together. Heavenly Father and Lord, we are thankful and we are grateful for all that you are and all that you've done. And now we get to come together and we get to look at your word. We sang as an act of worship to you. And now my prayer is that you'd help us to concentrate and to just be able to gaze at your scripture and be reminded of the great gift that we have today on Resurrection Sunday. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you're finding your seat. You can go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turning it to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, as we see today how Jesus brings us from death to life today on Easter Sunday. That's going to be page 984 in the Pew Bible, if you have one of those close to you. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater, so I have the privilege, privilege of preaching most Sundays, not all Sundays, but most Sundays. Our mission as a church is to help people in our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. So if I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you before you leave for today. Colossians chapter 2. If you were to go to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and you walked through the downtown, you might notice something that is a bit of a local mystery for the people of the city. It seems that at some point in the past, the residents of the city conducted business in first floors that are now below the sidewalks and the parking meters on the main downtown streets. And that you can go inside many of the privately owned downtown businesses and you can find what is now a basement that used to be the main level for the building where you would walk in off the street to get your shave or uh, deposit your money in the bank or go shopping or whatever it might have been. But at some point in the past, the residents or the government maybe decided to raise the streets of the downtown an entire level so that the second level of the building became the first level and the first level of the building became what is now the basement. So as you're walking down the sidewalk, you have these window casings where the top of them are half covered up by the concrete sidewalk. You're walking down the sidewalk with a window at your feet. And the real mystery is that people have forgotten why the city ever decided to do that in the first place. Some people say that they raised the downtown a level, maybe to keep from having to suffer from the flooding of the Tennessee River, which is right there next to Chattanooga. Other people say that it, was, it helped in preventing the spread of the diseases of the day, like cholera and yellow fever. But nobody's really sure because as time has gone by, the city has just forgotten why such a monumental construction process was overtaken over 100 years ago. It's kind of like the old story. It's been told so many times it's not even funny anymore, but I'm going to waste your time this morning and tell it to you again. The young newlywed wife was preparing her first Easter meal, and she um, took the ham, and she cut both ends off of the ham, and she cooked it, and then she set it down at the table. Her newlywed husband sits down and starts to eat, and he says, Honey, this is such a delicious ham. I'm so happy you cooked your first Easter meal, but I've got a question. Why did you cut the ends off of the Easter ham? At which she says, well, you know, I don't really know. My mom always cut the ends off the Easter ham. I guess I'll call her and find out. So she calls her mom. She says, Mom, I just cooked my first Easter meal, but um, my husband asked me why we cut the ends off of the Easter ham, and I couldn't tell him. Um, I didn't know. So, Mom, why do we cut the ends off the Easter ham? And she says, well, I don't know. Grandma always cut the ends off the Easter ham. So maybe you need to call Grandma. So she calls up Grandma, and she says, Mama. You're going to be so proud of me. I just cooked my first Easter ham, but my husband wants to know why we cut the ends off of the Easter ham. Why do we do that? And Mama says, well, I don't know why you do it, but the reason I did it was because my pot was too small. <laughs> so we can see that, that things become easy to forget, don't they? 
We can oftentimes forget why we do something. We can quickly forget why something is significant. And I fear that same thing with Easter altogether, that we can become so removed from the event that we forget why Christ had to rise from the grave. So this morning, I want to focus on the why of the resurrection. Why was it absolutely necessary for Jesus to die, for him to suffer for our sins, and then to, on the third day, rise from the grave? And we're going to answer that by looking at the book of Colossians. And here's what you might need to know about the book. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Colossae. Colossae is a, was a city in what would, we would call modern-day Greece. Um, some people say that there's a dangerous teaching that has infiltrated the church at this point, that the letter's being written about 30 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a church that was probably planted by Paul while he was also ministering at and planting the church in the city of Ephesus. But now this dangerous teaching needs to be addressed. Some people say it's an early heresy called Gnosticism, which was basically the belief that everything physical and material is evil. Other people say it had something to do with Judaism and maybe practicing the Sabbath or interest in angels. Maybe it's some form of mysticism. It might not be exactly clear what the occasion of the letter was, but one thing is certain. Whatever the problem is, Paul seeks to counter that problem by painting a big, glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And if you read Colossians front to back, you're going to realize that's exactly what it is. It is a big, glorious picture of Jesus high and lifted up. And in the second chapter, he's addressing that dangerous teaching that has infiltrated the church. And he's at least in verses 13 through 15, showing us some of the reasons by which Christ chose to be crucified and to rise from the grave. So, why does Easter matter? Why does it matter? Why is the resurrection so important? Why did Christ need to go to the cross and to rise on the third day? Why should this be the most celebrated, joyous day for the Christian throughout the entire year. Well, I'm going to give you two reasons this morning if you're filling in on your outline. Here's the first reason, because you and I need to be brought to life. We need to be brought to life, because look now at Colossians chapter 2. We'll read verses 13 and 14. Verse 12 is really the verse that talks about the resurrection and sets up the resurrection, so you can read that as well. But look at verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul opens this section of text by first describing our state without Jesus. Notice that he describes us as being what? dead in our trespasses. He also says that we're dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. There are a lot of concepts going on here. One being that, first of all, we really are spiritually dead without Jesus. That's, that's where we are. So we don't believe that the state of man is one that has just kind of veered off path and it just needs to be roped in and, and brought back into what it's supposed to be, kind of veered off its original mission. We don't believe that our problem is that we're just not good enough and we need to try harder. And if you really try harder, you'll eventually be able to make, make up for it. We believe that dead means dead. That's what it means. Without God giving us spiritual life, we don't even necessarily realize that we need Jesus. I mean, we're spiritual zombies marching through life. I mean, walking dead style. We don't even realize how much we need our Lord and Savior. 
So really what needs to happen is we need to be brought to life, which really is what these three verses are talking about based on the resurrection presented in verse 12. Verses 13, 14, and 15 are talking about how we need to be brought to life from death in Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, let's just break this down quickly, um, just a little bit farther, so that we can really see what Paul is getting at. Um, What does that look like that Jesus gave you life? What does that actually mean? Well, first, under letter A, it means that Jesus brought you to life. Because look at verse 13 again. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. So even though we were dead, praise God, Christ rose from the grave so that we can be imparted with life. Second, under letter B, Jesus brought you to him. Because right after that, verse 13, what does it say next? It says that God made alive together with him. Our life is not in anything other than Jesus. It's not just that Jesus died on a cross. It's not just that Jesus paid for your sins. It's not just that Jesus rose from the grave and now we get to escape hell. It's that you are now, if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. Christ is in you. The righteousness of Jesus has clothed you, covered your sins, So when God looks down at you, he sees the spiritual perfection of Jesus. And that's good news, folks. I mean, that's the news of Easter. That's the news of the resurrection. Third, under letter C, Jesus canceled our sin debt to God. Because what does it say right after that? Into verse 13, running through into verse 14. It says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Look at that phrase, record of debt, in your Bible. You can underline that if you've got a pen and if you write in your Bible. Because at the time that he's writing this, in the Greco-Roman world, the, the record of debt was a literal written note of indebtedness that you had to someone that you owed money to. Like, it was a real thing. Like, you could walk up to somebody, the owed money, and you could ask to see this thing, and they could show it to you. So if Paul was to write this today, he may not talk about a written letter of debt. He might talk about pulling out your phone and pulling up your bank statement, you know, getting on your laptop, looking at the state of your your mortgage or your withdrawal, seeing the interest pile up. Yet, it's not monetary debt that he's critiquing here. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's using that as an example to talk about the debt of our sin, And when Jesus rose from the grave and when you repented and believed, no matter how in debt you were to God, God paid it off. He did away with it. He wiped it away. And it's not only wiped away, because look at the next way that he describes it. Fourth, under letter D, Jesus nailed our sin to the cross. And actually, that's exactly what verse 14 says, doesn't it? It says that Jesus Your sin has been nailed to the cross of Christ. He takes that same image. Imagine a written list, just like that record of debt that Paul was talking about, that written list that has your name at the top and has every sin that you have ever committed going down that list all the way to the bottom. And there's an intentional picture here that Paul is drawing off of. It's hard for us to catch, but I think the original audience would have caught it a lot quicker. When an individual was crucified, it was absolutely common place for them to nail a piece of parchment or a piece of wood that stated the reason they were being crucified. So they did that for Jesus, didn't they? What did it say? It said, 
Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He had claimed to be the king. So if you were walking down the road and on the shoulder of the road, you saw an individual that was nailed to a cross or a stake or a tree or the side of a building or whatever they would crucify people on, you would be able to look and you'd be able to see exactly what they were being crucified for. You'd see rapist. You'd see murderer. You'd see adulteress. You'd see thief. Well, Paul is saying that in God's mind, when Jesus hung on that cross, your list with your name at the top was nailed to that cross. God saw you and me and our sin hanging there. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, preacher, good job. You've succeeded at making me feel bad. Thank you so much. Everything was going great. It's Easter morning, right? You had a donut, maybe a bagel. You're trying to watch your weight. Shame on you. But, you know, you've had your coffee. You liked the first songs. That was nice. Now you're making me feel like a jerk, preacher. What's up with that? But this, is, this really is not meant to be depressing. I mean, it can be depressing. It can create a melancholy re- response in us if you allow it to be. But if you are a Christian, none of this is bad news. This is good news for you. This is very good news. This is news that we rejoice over. And I'll, I'll show you why. The story's been told before, so I'll paraphrase it here. Martin Luther is the man that 500 years ago led what we call the Protestant Reformation. So 500 years ago, actually this year, Martin Luther, a Catholic priest, um, walked up to a Catholic church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed what is known as the 95 Thesis on the door of that church. And that 95 Thesis outlined 95 deviances from the gospel that he believed the Catholic church had adopted. So he saw specifically the selling of indulgences as being one of the most grievous. And that the Catholic church, they were building uh, new cathedrals all over Europe, and they needed to fund them. So they were, if you were willing to pay a certain amount of money, they would forgive some of your sin. And he pointed to that as well as many different issues that he claimed were blatantly outside the realm of the Bible. And he was originally calling for the reform of the church. Martin Luther didn't want to, to, to spin off and, and, and start a different church or anything like that. He just, wanted, he just wanted to change. He wanted this stuff to stop. But instead, the leadership eventually tried to kill him, at which finally he founded what is known today as the Lutheran strain of Christianity, out which of that came everything from Presbyterians to Methodists to Baptists to Pentecostals to Puritans to basically every other, Pente- uh, every other Protestant denomination that you can think of. But there's an account that occurred in Luther's life that was told posthumously. And as a result, some of the details are a little fuzzy, but it appears that Satan appeared to Martin Luther at one point, either in a dream or maybe in person. Luther was tucked away in hiding, translating the Bible into German, because up until that point, the Bible was only allowed to be in Latin, which nobody could read if you, unless you were a priest, so it wasn't for the common man. But while Luther was working on that translation, the devil came to him, and the devil said, Luther, how dare you attempt to reform this church? Do you remember all the sin that is in your life? Do I have to remind you of everything that you've done? Do I have to remind you of every time that you said something that you shouldn't have said? Do I have to remind you of every time your faith in God fumbled? Do I have to remind you of all the times that you acted out of character and you brought shame on the cross of Christ? Luther, do I have to remind you of all that? At which Martin Luther responded by stating, Devil, go ahead and write down all my sins that you have charged me with. And when you're done, if you can think of any more, make sure that you write them down. So 
Satan says, all right, I can do that. So he begins writing down all the recorded sins of Martin Luther. I'm sure there are a few things in life that Satan doesn't enjoy more than that. And Luther waited a while, and he asked, have you done it? Have you recorded my sin? At which the devil responds and says, yes, Luther, I have. And I want you to know that it is a dark tale if there ever was one. Luther, when you see all the sins piled up against you that you've committed in your life, you'll know that you have no right to minister in this way. At which Luther replies, yes, Satan, I'll admit that it is a dark catalog. My sins are many. My transgressions against a perfect and infinitely holy God are as countless on the hairs on my head. In me, there is no good. But Satan, I want you to write something after that final sin that you've recorded. I want you to write 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And it cleanses you from all sin. Now, you haven't led a reformation like Martin Luther led. God hasn't used you in the same ways and to the same degrees necessarily that God used that man. And you've probably never seen the devil in the flesh, I would bet. But you can imagine him throwing every sin that you've ever committed in your face. You can imagine that record of debt, as Paul calls it, being stapled to the inside of your mind. So he's constantly causing you to recall that, picking at the scabs of your deepest insecurities, echoing the call of the world that you're not good enough, that nobody likes you, nobody cares for you, nobody loves you, you don't deserve forgiveness, you don't have anything to offer. Some of you, maybe all of us to some degree, this is the life that we live where the enemy is doing everything he can to cause doubt in our hearts as to our worth and as to whether our past sins can be really paid for. And he wants to cause you to think that it would be easier for you to go back to your old life. He wants you to think nothing more than than in such a way that would cause you to live for the world, to ignore God. You're not good enough for God. You can never be perfect, so why don't you just go back to living the life that you used to live? Friends, hear me. R. Kent Hughes says that there is no tyranny like the tyranny of the guilt of sin. Yet the good news, according to Colossians 2, is that if you are in Christ, there is no guilt for your sin. Like, it's really been done away with. It doesn't exist. So to echo the Apostle Paul in our text, sinner indeed you are, but it no longer stands against you. It has been nailed to the cross. And the nail, we hope, we know, holds strong. So the first reason Jesus rose from the grave is because you and I needed to be brought to life. Here's the second reason. It's because you and I needed to be set free. We need to be set free. Because look with me now at verse 15. Look in your copy of God's Word. Just picking up where we left off. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now, What in the world is this talking about? Who are these rulers and authorities that God has put to open shame? Well, it's most likely talking about demonic powers. So that makes us feel a little weird. Every time I talk about this, my brain zips back to that time that I watched The Exorcist, and it was, you know, pretty freaky and and pretty scary. But the Bible actually paints the world, this world that you live in right now, as being under the power of demonic influences. 
Satan himself is called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the prince of this world in the Bible. He and his demons are prowling the earth, looking for people to devour, opportunities to lead you and others away from God and deeper into spiritual darkness. Now, that's not to say that God is subordinate to Satan right now. That's not to say that God is powerless in the face of Satan. That's not to say any of that at all. But we are in this time when Satan is indeed loose. He's loose. And we are waiting for, joyfully anticipating the return of the king who will totally, completely conquer him. Now, while we wait, the good news for you, Christian, is that although Satan is the prince of this world and spiritual darkness and immorality are the norm, hear me, Christian, if you are a Christian, he has no authority over you. None. Now, thinking about verse 15, you can underline this as well. Put them to open shame. That phrase, that's the same word used in Matthew 1, referring to Joseph's unwillingness to expose Mary's pregnancy and bring public shame on her because she was pregnant outside of marriage. So this is, Paul is saying God is applying that kind of public shame to Satan. Right after that, most commentators say that phrase, triumphing over them, that's meant to bring with it the image of a triumphal Roman military procession where the defeated king, along with his surviving warriors and all the spoils of war, would be paraded through the streets of Rome, a public spectacle to mock the defeated enemy, to mock the conquered nation, the conquered leader. So you know what Paul wants the Colossians to see? And you know what God wants us to see today on Easter Sunday. When we look at the cross and we look at the empty tomb, we see a public mocking of Satan. Like, ha, like, look at this devil. You think you're a big deal. You think you're the cat's meow. You think you got it all together. And, but we know, we know because of verses like this, that even though you've got most of the world exactly where you want it to be, we know that you are nothing but a defeated, cowardly, conquered punk. Like you're done. You've been, the resurrection marched you, excuse me, podium, marched you through the street and it pointed at you and made everybody aware of how ridiculous you are. Now, I'm not exactly proud of this, but I've done a lot of mocking in my life. In middle school, I started playing catcher on the baseball team, used to play third base before that. And if you were mouthy, the good thing about being a catcher is you have a constant rotation of people that you can talk to. So the batter would come up, and I would honestly, I'd call them every name in the book. I'd call them a sissy, princess, peaches, stanky face. I'd make, if their parents were cheering, for, you didn't want your parents, because I would, I'd make fun of their parents, I'd make fun of their sisters. Um, I didn't even know if they had sisters, but I'm making fun of them. And I don't know how it works. Now. You know, if they swung and missed, oh goodness gracious, you might as well just pack up and, and go home. And I don't know how it is now, but when I played baseball back in the Stone Age, my coaches encouraged it. Like, they would make you catch or not because you had a good arm, but because you were mouthy. You could intimidate these people. Even the umpires would oftentimes laugh and, and look, don't think that, that, that I'm sharing this because I want y'all to, to mock other people. That's not it at all. I'm just telling you that it really would affect them. I mean, it really would. They could not concentrate the way that they needed to if they had someone openly, publicly mocking them. Well, look, Christian, every time you resist temptation, 
Every time you love your neighbor, every time you overcome sin, every time you take a knee and pray, every time you, Father, lead your family in spiritual matters, every time you, Jesus, you choose Jesus over the world, you are openly, publicly mocking the demonic rulers and the authorities that want you to fail. He's already been disarmed, according to verse 15. The resurrection has marched him through the street of defeat. You no longer have to live like a person under the tyranny of sin. God has indeed set you free. So look, I know that that has been a quick account of these three verses. And I know that it's quick, but I think it's powerful. We've seen two reasons Jesus rose from the grave. First of all, because you need to be brought to life. And second of all, because you and I needed to be set free. And there's so much more that we could say about the resurrection and about how your life has changed because of it. But I really want us to think now for just these closing minutes about what all of this means to us. Like, yes, Christ died on the cross. Yes, Christ went in the tomb. Yes, Christ on the third day, rose from the grave. We get all of that. The stone rolled away, angel proclaiming, why do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus ain't here, he's risen. But what now? Like, how do you take the fact that you really have been brought to life if you're a Christian, and if you're a Christian, you really have been set free? How do you actually live like that? Well, this Easter, I want you to leave here reminding yourself of four different truths, and I'm going to go through these quickly. First, if you are in Christ, and if is a key word there, if you really are in Christ, there is no shame. There is no shame. Now look, you're going to screw up. Guarantee you, it's going to happen. Nobody's perfect. We all know that. We all get that. That's not to flaunt sin. That's just reality. And don't get me wrong, there is conviction like, we should be convicted when we sin. We should not be okay as Christians with the times when we catch ourselves or someone else helps to reveal to us that we've been living in rebellion against God. I understand that, but there is no shame. There is no shame. Second, if you are in Christ, there is no guilt. Oh, what it would be like if Christians could live and remind themselves that their sin really was paid for. It really was. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are no longer guilty before a righteous and just God. Christ really did pay for your sin. Third, if you are in Christ, there is no insecurity. There's nothing that you need to feel like you need to hide or to cover up or to try to conceal. If you're good enough for God, you know what? If you're good enough for God, you're good enough for everybody, whether they understand that or not. There, you should, we should not have insecurities. And fourth, if you are in Christ, there is immeasurable joy. Now, I'm not saying that life is going to be easy for you or that there won't be points where you will cry, weep, and wail before the Lord. What I'm saying is that God has in Jesus done away with every joy-stealing power that used to have authority over you. Like, he's done away with it. You have went from, think about this, estranged from God to being adopted into his family, member of his family, him, the creator of everything, the giver of life. You are his. He is yours. There is nothing that anyone or anything can ever do to take that away from you. That really is indeed measurable joy today on Easter. Now, let me share this, and then we'll be done. Have you all ever heard of the goof on the roof? I don't think... I can't remember ever bringing it up here. So way back a long time ago, there was this dude named Robert Stack. And uh, he was a diehard Baltimore Ravens fan. So much so that um, 
He took his team so seriously that he resolved to live on the roof of a city bar in Baltimore until the team won a game. And this was back before they started winning games and winning Super Bowls. And the stunt attracted all kinds of local and national attention, and it also caught the, um, the ear, the eye of his estranged wife, who said, hey, this is neat. Um, how about he get down off the roof and get a job and pay some child support? How about that for his kids? So, yeah, you heard that right. Stack's devotion to his team eclipsed his devotion to his family, actually by the sum of $40,000 in back child support, which is a lot of money for me. Um, the thing is kind of comical at first. You're like, hey, this is cool. This dude's up on the roof, man. He really cares about his family, really cares about his football team. And then you find out that, yeah, no job, no income, children who need food in their mouth, and then you're, you're kind of saddened by the whole account. But the goof on the roof sums up one of the chief temptations we face. We are tempted to take serious things unseriously and take unserious things seriously. And isn't that basically what we've done with pretty much every Christian holiday? The, the childish, ridiculous part of the tradition that doesn't even have anything to do with the event that is being celebrated takes center stage while the event that is being celebrated is kind of put on the back burners and not really paid attention to. It's treated like it's of no real significance at all. And my question for you is not just simply, like, is that the way that you've treated the resurrection, the rising of the grave, from the grave by the Son of God, but maybe is that the way that you treated Jesus? Like, up until this point, maybe you've just lived your life where... You know, I mean, it's, you, you've dealt him some, some cards every now and then. You know, you go to church occasionally. Maybe you even consider yourself a religious person or whatever in the world that means. But maybe you just haven't taken him seriously. Maybe you've never truly repented and believed. Maybe you've never considered your record of debt before a perfect and holy and just God. That, that debt has not been paid for. It isn't. It's not, it's not done away with if you have not repented and believed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So my encouragement today for you is on Easter Sunday to make this the day that you repent and believe. To make this the day that you can come and you can no longer sing as one who just sings the songs or open your Bible just as one who owns a Bible, but you can come rejoicing because of all that God has done for you. Will, will you just will you do that? Will you repent and believe and begin following Christ? If you will, I would love to talk with you about that this morning. So there are a couple different ways that you can respond here at Freshwater. If you'd like to place your faith in Jesus, hear about what that looks like. First is with your Connect card on the inside of your worship guide, you can hit that bubble at the top that says, I I've chosen to follow Jesus. You could also hit that bubble, you're interested in baptism if you haven't been baptized. Throw that in the giving baskets when they come by later, and we will contact you soon to follow up on that. Um, the second way is just to grab my hand on the way out and just say, I always stand at the door and just say, hey, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus, and I want to... Um, I want to hear more about what that looks like, and I'd love to schedule time when we can get together and talk about that. And then the last way, the third way, is just for you to, to come back during this next song that we sing. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing in just a second. As we sing, um, I'm going to be in the foyer area at the Connect table, and I would love to receive you, to pray for you, answer to the best of my ability and questions that you have. So you can just step out of the aisle, come back, talk with me. I'd love to talk with you more about that. This is also the time in the service when we take an offering. So know that the time in the service when we take an offering is not insignificant. It's not like it's not important at all. It's the time when the partners and the, the, the regular percentage of Freshwater give their tithes and offerings to support the mission of the church, of helping people become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. If you are new 
guest, whatever, just hanging out. We don't expect you to give in any way. We don't expect that out of you. This is for the regular partners and attenders. There are four ways that we give here at Freshwater. First being the giving baskets, which are going to be passed during this next song. So those will come by. Um, the second being the giving kiosk, which is located in the foyer where you can give by debit card. The third way being the giving box, also located in the foyer. And the fourth way being online at freshwaterjc.com. So I will pray for us, and then after I pray, we will sing, we will give to the Lord, and we will just continue admiring our God for bringing Jesus back from the grave. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you.